Welcome to the Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And we are reading our way, as you know, through the Aubrey Matchery novels by Patrick O'Brien. Mike, it's, it's, it's turn a new page, turn a new chapter week this week. Remind us, where were we last week? What new territories are we exploring this week? Oh, you bet, Ian. So we finished the Ionian mission last week, or at least we finished the book entitled The Ionian Mission. We had Jack and the crew as a surprise, right? They defeated Mustafa Bey and his two ships. We had a rousing action, hadn't had one of those for a while. But we're still left with questions like, did they ever complete the mission and take Marga? Uh, we had a Chekhov's gun, this unholy alliance with Ray and Hart. Uh, what's going to come of that? This week, we find Jack and Stephen ashore in Malta as they're waiting for their two ships, the Worcester and the Surprise, to be refitted. We're back into the world of corrupt shipyards, philosophy, French intelligence, local ladies, and perhaps we'll get to Jack's ability to rescue men overboard, replayed on shore. Ah, fascinating. But Mike, you and I have both said as we've anticipated this book and especially this chapter, there's so much going on. It's like lifting the lid on this really great, rich, complex treat that we have. And Mike, even before we turn a page, there's something for us to dig into. The epigraph, we haven't dug into quotations or um, epigraphs or dedications at the beginning of his books, and he has done many, but... He gives us a direct explanation, apparently, for the title of the book, Treason's Harbour. The epigraph is a quote from uh, Henry VI, Part Two. It says, smooth runs the water where the brook is deep, and in his simple show, he harbours treason. So we have a very kind of commonplace saying, in at least in British English now, which is still waters run deep. We have the origin of that, and we have this idea of smooth waters not only hiding depth but hiding treasonable treacherous depth and mike this is something that we can dig into all by itself oh we really can we now have to ask ourselves like we do every time o'brien plants one of these Ooh, what's he referring to who's he referring to where are we going to see this played out like we did with the surgeon's mate who or what is the surgeon's mate now who is the smooth water running deep or what is here what do you think, Ian? Any, any, I know this is one of your favorite books. Any thoughts here? Well, it's funny. I, the, the more I've thought about all of the associations and allusions and really long, long-term themes in the previous books, the more I kind of doubt my own intuition on this. So it's pretty easy to see that harboring treason, this is a connection to betrayal and probably to espionage. So that immediately makes you think of Stephen. He's called a deep old file. And he's pretty calm and zen almost, so still water's running deep. That makes sense. Mike, we're going to meet at least one new secondary character in this chapter, and she's involved in deception. I don't think it's giving too much away to say that the book is going to tell us something about campaigns with a component of deception in them run by or on behalf of the French against the English. And also, without giving too much away, we're in a story arc here about deception and hidden identity that's going to go on. I've, I've been counting forward at least five more books, possibly nine more books. So so who knows? And of course, this is Patrick O'Brien, and he, he loves a bit of ambiguity. Um, 
don't know what else or who else is there that has a simple or calm exterior belying depths and in particular belying treachery yeah and as you say knowing that it's o'brien it it could be somebody on land it could be mm-hmm. one of the ships it could be an institution it might even be dogs dogs mm. <laughs> well we'll have to dig into that when it comes right anyhow mike that's the epigraph we turn the first page and we get this wonderful opening paragraph and I'll I'll put my hand up right now and enthuse that this is one of my favorite opening paragraphs. It's right up there with the octagonal pillared room. Right. It's right up there with the the opening of uh, Surgeon's Mate when the uh, Java's coming into the harbor of Halifax. We've got this beautiful sunlit day. We've got the bowered court of Searles Hotel, and in my mind, Mike, I'm also remembering a particular audiobook narration, and we'll play a bit of it here. Oh, nice. A gentle breeze from the northeast after a night of rain, and the washed sky over Malta had a particular quality in its light that sharpened the lines of the noble buildings. The air, too, was a delight, and the city of Valletta was as cheerful as though it were fortunate in love. This was more than usually remarkable in a group of naval officers sitting in the bowered court of Searles Hotel. To be sure, they looked out upon the arcaded upper baraka, filled with soldiers, sailors, and civilians pacing slowly up and down, in a sunlight so brilliant that it made even the black hoods the Maltese women wore look gay. So that's actually the opening of my one and only audiobook experience with Patrick O'Brien. Mike, you and lots of our listeners have been in the experience with Patrick Tull and all the others. This takes me right back to a time when I was doing a particular long-distance drive and I was into audiobooks and I thought, I'll take these Patrick O'Briens and I'll see how they play out. And the one that I had was actually a an abridged audiobook reading by Robert Hardy. And Robert Hardy's the narrator that we just listened to. And I love the way he reads it. And I love the way these words sound aloud. You know, it's really great poetry and it's really beautiful language as well. Yeah. I'm now, I think, on a mission to sort of listen to all of them <laughs> done in all their different ways. I know everybody has their favorites and it's hard once you get those voices in your head to get different ones. But God, these words are so phenomenal. I would be delighted to hear them a million ways by a million different people. And I'll say, I recommend Robert Hardy, if he can get away with the fact that the editions are abridged, because we're talking about the old days when people got them on cassette tapes and abridging was was still a popular way with, with audiobooks. Robert Hardy's great and uh, and his reading is great. And this we get all this beautiful visual language. We get light. We get poetry. We get this very cinematic sense and uh, I could read it over and over. That The light even comes back in, in in a few paragraphs' time when we get to the description of an ornament worn by Jack, but we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. Meanwhile, what, what's going on with Jack and the captains? Let's pick that up. Well, it's funny because here we've got this incredible light, this beautiful scene, and, and we're focusing down. You can kind of see the camera narrowing in to this bunch of captains sitting around here in this courtyard of this hotel, and... O'Brien tells us that most of them, like Jack, are grass widowers. They're people who are waiting for their ships to be repaired. And, and O'Brien tells us, 
you know, they're being repaired in this slow, overcrowded dockyards filled with, as he says, devious, stupid, corrupt, incompetent officials, tradesmen and artificers. So, you know, we're, we're already setting the scene here in the midst of this beautiful <laughs> landscape. We've got this boil of corruption here that's, that's keeping it. And we've got a number of other captains who, for various and sundry reasons, have no ships. And given his financial trouble at home, we've got Jack, who, despite his winnings, which he's not yet received from the prize court, is living very modestly, three flights up. His only indulgence is the opera. He, unfortunately, has, as we've said, two ships. He's got the Worcester and the Surprise both waiting to be repaired. And while he's waiting, O'Brien writes, the Surprise's once excellent crew of picked seamen grew idle, dissolute, debauched, drunken, and unhealthy, while some of its very best hands and even the petty officers were stolen by unscrupulous superiors. So, with the light and the poetry, all is still not well in the world of Jack. (sighs) Poor fellow. And he's sitting there talking and singing away, and meanwhile... Stephen and Professor Graham have stepped away for a bit more of a confidential chat. We'll come to that in a second, but for now, Jack is delighted to be sat next to Thomas Pullings. Pullings has been promoted. Tom is happier again himself to have been promoted. He's carrying this very ugly wound. His nose and his face were pretty much sliced off in the boarding of the Torgood, and Stephen was obliged to stitch him back up. And despite all the happiness among the officers and the happiness for Pullings, I think Stephen's mood is not so great, right? No, no, he really isn't. So we kind of shift it. We've got Jack and the captains and then much further away, Stephen's like they've been too loud for him. They were just too much. And O'Brien's starting to peel away what's going on. Well, one thing that's going on is he had been promised fish all week. I guess he's been living in Malta. As, as a Catholic, he doesn't eat meat on Fridays, and he always has these tasteless vegetables. But this fish that he loves is coming in, but it hasn't showed up. It hasn't showed up. But then we peel back another layer and find out, as Graham points out, that it may have something to do with the fact that he gave up tobacco the day before. And O'Brien says he's also had a series of vexations and some very grave anxieties. But he doesn't tell us about those. He steers straight ahead, goes straight at him, as Stephen and Graham are talking about philosophy. Graham is talking to Stephen, and he says, you might say that Duns Scotus stands in much the same relationship to Aquinas as Kant to Leibniz. Sure, I've often heard the remark in Balanuslow, said Maturin, but I have no patience with Immanuel Kant. Ever since I found him take such notice of that thief Rousseau, I've had no patience with him at all. For a philosopher to countenance that false ranting dog of a Swiss rapparee shows either a criminal levity or a no less criminal gullibility. There's, there's loads going on here. And I'll say, first of all, Mike, we need to dig into the world of Rousseau. And we're going to take advice on Rousseau and philosophical matters more generally from our good friend, Brian Wilson. Um, A little later this episode, we'll welcome Brian and we're going to pick his brains a little bit on Enlightenment philosophy and on Rousseau. But I think there's a little bit of showing off going on here. I think Graham is showing off, maybe. I think Patrick O'Brien is showing off for sure. He's giving us um, a couple of things. First of all, we've got the fun, that we've got the sarcastic humor of Graham and Maturin sort of fencing with each other and Maturin coming along with his really sarcastic put down, you know, about I've often heard it said in Bowen and Slow. And that that's great. It gets us into Stephen's grouchy mood. 
But also, O'Brien's giving us a rug whose corner we can lift up. We, he's giving us the rug of philosophy and saying, do you want to look under here? So that the, the, we get the tourist bus tour of Enlightenment philosophy and its antecedents. So here's the bus tour version. Duns, Scotus, and Thomas Aquinas, theologians and philosophers. One of them was Scottish, one of them was Italian, both late 13th century, both early contributors to the field of metaphysics, exploring what it means to be, and in their case, I think, hoping to prove the existence of God in the process. Gottfried Leibniz and Immanuel Kant, German philosophers, one of the 17th century, one of the late 18th century, both also interested in metaphysics. Leibniz, in particular, coming at it from the perspective of being a a, a physicist, a natural philosopher. But Kant is the one who gets it. And I mean, maybe that's because Kant didn't die until 1804. So he would have been regarded as part of the contemporary intellectual scene by Maturin and Graham. So he's the one who takes the heat for bothering to give any credit to Rousseau. Now, and I don't know, we should ask Brian whether any of Graham's correlation of the relationships between the two men stands up to scrutiny, but it just reeks of dinner party style showing off if you want to be unkind about Graham. Or if you want to be kind about Graham's intention, maybe he's just hoping to distract Stephen from his grumpiness and his nicotine withdrawal. Kind of like an enlightenment philosophy nerd football fan going, how about them cowboys? Right, right. <laughs> That's right. Well, it, it's interesting because Stephen does take this philosophy discussion and turn it right around to come back to uh, you know another way to express his grouchiness here. But at least Rousseau did not make a noise, said Matron, looking angrily at his friends in the further bower. Jean-Jacques Rousseau may have been an apostate, a cold-hearted, prevaricating fornicator, but he did not behave like a Bashan bull when he was merry. Will you look at how they call out to those young women now for shame? So Stephen is not at all happy at the roar of the captains and the way they're chatting up the local girls from the opera here. He then goes into this incredible rant about how loud they are, how he assumes this would never happen in Scotland or in Ireland. And he universally condemns the English for what he calls their vicious inclination to make a confused bellowing when they are happy. Uh, he, He says it causes people universally to resent them just like the people of Malta now resent them, even though it you know, wasn't too long ago that the English Navy rescued them from what he calls the horrible tyranny of the French and mm. filled the place with wealth. He says, you know, unlike the other nations that carried off wealth, the English made them rich here. And then he pulls out this current newspaper article representing Sir Hildebrand's pomp and failure to address the Maltese people civilly, not to use their common tongue, not to really realize the importance of obtaining their goodwill. And he asked Graham to talk to Sir Hildebrand, this governor of Malta. And and Graham placates Stephen in Scottish. I, I have no idea how to pronounce his Scottish, but I understand that the translation is, yeah, well, well, perhaps, yeah. But he then changes the topic, suggesting that Stephen actually should talk to Jack and tell him to avoid Mr. Holden's company. Yeah, and we, we, we get a little connection here to, to a couple of bits of real-world history. We get Sir Hildebrand Oakes, who truly was the English civil commissioner of Malta from 1810 to 1813, and had commanded the Malta garrison as its military commander before that. So that's, that's a little peek into the real timeline. There's also a little peek into the Cochrane timeline, because the idea of British naval officers getting involved in the romantic-sounding prospects for Greek independence 
was part of Cochrane's story. And we have Mr. Holden, one of Jack's former shipmates, who has been dismissed from the service for using his ship to try and protect Greeks from the fleeing Turks. And he's in Malta kind of to, to, to carry that political idea forward. Mike, I don't think Holden was a real character, but this this is a real Cochrane interest, I think, as as is discontent with corruption in the Malta administration, which we've heard a little bit about, and I think we're going to hear about more later. Yeah, and I'm hoping we've got this whole thing going on in the last book, in this book, about we don't want to risk Turkish neutrality. And, you know, I'd love to get a little more historical perspective on this. Maybe one of these days we can, you know, tap one of our historian friends to come back to this. Ah, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Let's see what we can do about that. So Holden is willing to suspend his interest in Greek independence for a minute because he's fascinated by a Turkish bauble. He's looking at Jack and wondering what this decoration is in Jack's hat. And we get one of the rare pieces of dialogue from Jack in this chapter, and it's classic Aubrey, blunt, happy sailor man. It is a chelenk, said Jack, with some complacency. Ain't I elegant? And his friends are saying, wind it up again, wind it up for him. And the captain set his hat, his best number one full dress scraper on the table and the splendid bauble, two close packed lines of small diamonds, each topped by a respectable stone and each four or five inches long, twisted anti-clockwise for several turns, sprang into motion, the round turning with a gentle whir and the sprays quivering with a life of their own so that Captain Aubrey sat in a small private coruscation, a confidential prismatic firework display, astonishingly brilliant in the sun. And that's just great writing. I love it. I can I can read that over and over. And Jack's clearly pleased with his chilenk and his naval officer friends are pleased with the chilenk. What, what was a chilenk? What do we know about that, Mike? Well, actually, you know, in the story, O'Brien tells us this this bauble was awarded to Jack by the Turkish Sultan. And, and O'Brien has gone right back to British naval history and is saluting one of Jack's heroes. So this chilink was a military decoration used by the Ottoman Empire. So the Empire of the Turks back at this time and the first non-Ottoman Empire member to receive one of these was Horatio Nelson because of the Battle of the Nile in 1798. The Sultan in Turkey was so pleased that uh, it said that he had this made for Nelson. He met with Nelson. The Sultan had it on his hat, took it off his, gave it to Nelson. So, uh, And on that one, it was especially made. This thing usually had a couple of rays, but because Nelson had sunk seven ships, it had seven rays. The usual seven rays were augmented to be 13 rays because Nelson had taken down 13 ships. And O'Brien has appropriated that. He now has jacks with two rays representing the two ships, the Torgood and the Katabi, that uh, that Jack had taken uh, from this rebel Mustafa here. Um, it's worn just like Nelson's or his dress uniform. And just like Nelson's, this is one that has a hidden clockwork. So the diamond strands shimmer and go around, catch the sun and just, you know, kind of put this rainbow of sparkle on the wearers. Um, fascinatingly, Nelson's was eventually bought by the Society for Nautical Research in 1929. It was placed in the National Maritime Museum from which it was stolen in 1951 and never recovered. 
So maybe we can set some pictures of this and some references out on our social media. Fascinating appropriation from history here. It's great, isn't it? And I'm going to offer a little extra idea for an image link here. I don't know if any of you have seen the second series of the BBC TV show, His Dark Materials, which is an adaptation of the, the Philip Pullman books. In Lord Boreal's trinket collection in his fancy home in Oxford, there's a naval hat with a decoration. Ah. <laughs> and it looks an awful lot like a chilling. <laughs> and if I can find a, a, a still grab from the TV show, I'll put it out on the socials as well. Brilliant. So we've got a lot going on here. Already in Malta, we learned that the, the population are unhappy because Sir Hildebrand doesn't talk to them as, you know, as, as, a, as a human being should. We've got people agitating for Greek independence. We've got accommodating local opera ladies. Ah, there's plenty for us to be describing and plenty of uh, interesting color in this world that O'Brien's creating for us. But let's get back to Stephen and Graham. It's fascinating. You know, we've got Graham and Stephen sitting there, and O'Brien gives us one little moment where he's describing Matron feeling an insect on his leg. He stops to look at it before he swats it because he wants to know as a natural philosopher what it is, and he gets bitten because he slowed down. And there's just a, it's just an aside. We let it go, and Graham then it starts talking to Stephen again about philosophy. And he's trying to tell Stephen that this idea of giving up tobacco is a deprivation of liberty an abolition of the right of present choice, which is freedom's very essence. And he says, you know, really he should, as the occasion required, maintain his freedom to choose because with Stephen's, what he calls ill time austerities that lead to moroseness, we may be led to forget our social duties and so loosen the bonds of society. So here we've gone from Stephen being a little grouchy about his tobacco to, you know, it sounds like all these other philosophers on the rights of man and the champions of freedoms and individuals and utopian societies. But uh, Stephen, I think, gives us a different perspective on what Graham's trying to say here. Yeah, and I, I think he's uh, he's willing to accept that uh, Graham's probably trying to give him an out and give him a nice philosophically valid way of explaining away his state of mind. And Stephen says, I'm sure that you mean kindly in speaking so, yet you must allow me to say that I wonder at it. I wonder that a man of your parts should believe in a simple, single cause for so complex an effect as a state of mind. Is it conceivable that mere absence of tobacco alone could make me testy? No, no. In psychology, as in history, we must look for multiple causality. I love this little sign-off at the end. I shall smoke a small cigar, or part of a small cigar, out of compliment to you. But you will see that the difference, if it exists at all, is very slight. And with that, we also get a little bit more explanation from O'Brien, explaining that it's not just lack of fish and lack of nicotine that's driving Stephen's bad temper we realize that there are a number of causes, one being the fact that Stephen is feeling sexually starved. And recently his amorous propensities, it said, had been stirred. The bull, confined, grows vicious, he observed to himself. He steps out into the sun to keep his cigar smoke from Professor Graham. And Mike, this is a great moment when, when the whole tone of the chapter tilts as we get a new perspective. So we have this, as you say, this is this is kind of this unbelievable change in perspective. This is something I don't remember experiencing in the canon. 
this far here. You know, we've had this big wide shot of the Baraka. We've been down close with Jack and and his little bauble here. We've looked at Matron and Graham. And now we're going to pivot. We're getting this view from a clock tower that's kind of across the way. And uh, all of a sudden, we're seeing this from a completely different angle. So we shift to this view of Matron as he stepped out to to keep his smoke away. O'Brien tells us that we're at the top of his tower, which has been unoccupied for years. O'Brien tells us since the time of the Knights, the Knights of Malta. And we have these two watchers. And so as soon as Matron steps out, this first watcher says... He is a naval surgeon and a very clever one, they say, but he is also an intelligence agent. His name is Matron, Stephen Matron, Irish father, Spanish mother, can pass for either or for French. He has done a great deal of damage. He has been the direct cause of many of our people's deaths, and he was aboard the ocean when your cousin was poisoned. Whoa! Oh, that, that, that's a great callback. That's the Maltese Clark. And we, we were I think we were just speculating early on in the Ionian mission about whether this Maltese Clark had been poisoned or had murdered or committed suicide. And this is the closure of that particular story. This is not the last time in this chapter that we're going to hear a bit of story being closed off secondhand. But that's our Maltese Clark. He was poisoned. The French think Maturin had something to do with it. And the Maltese guy who's with the French agent here is pretty keen for revenge. He says, I shall deal with him tonight. You will do nothing of the kind, the first man said sharply. I commend your zeal and I know you are an excellent hand with a knife, but this is not Naples, nor even Rome. So again, all of a sudden we've gone from bantering about philosophy and sunlight and chilenks and ladies from the opera to some real foreboding here for our characters. We had this great idyllic beginning, and now we've got these two characters out of the blue talking very frankly between them about murder and about immediate threats to Stephen's life, and also immediately showing that at least somebody in the French authorities can finger him for what he is, which is an intelligence agent working on behalf of the British. Yeah, yeah. So we've got this new character, Lassure, and Lassure explains that they really cannot have anybody suspecting their intelligence activity on Malta. They need to stay disguised and hidden. And if Stephen all of a sudden turns up dead, everybody's going to be trying to figure out why that is, and it's likely to expose their spy network. And he tells Giuseppe, his kind of local assistant, that he set Mrs. Fielding on him. We have no idea who Mrs. Fielding is. And he wants Giuseppe and Luigi, another character we haven't met yet, to watch Stephen's other meetings. Then we learn that Mrs. Fielding is a Neapolitan. She was married, is currently married, to a Royal Navy lieutenant who's currently in a French prison, likely under a death sentence once he comes to trial for having escaped and killed a gendarme. She has been led to believe that if she passes on intelligence gained by her social standing and her entertaining, her giving Italian lessons to British officers, that the trial could be indefinitely postponed and ultimately result in lesser charges. Now, she thinks that the intelligence relates to ship movements and that she's helping businessmen in Venice and Genoa, helping insurance companies. She has no idea this is French military intelligence. Uh, And she she has very little money, 
but she gives these little musical parties. She plays the piano and the mandolin, and she has this great lemon tree in her garden, and she offers them lemonade from this lemon tree, which is such a precious possession for her. So fascinating new character, fascinating new setup, and O'Brien just turning on a dime in this novel here. And as we learn more about Laura Fielding, we also get another one of these great shifts in perspective as Lesueur points out Jack. And we get a little bit of retroactive kind of continuity for Jack here. Um, Giuseppe, the Italian agent or the Maltese agent, calls him a great fat yellow-haired post-captain with a sparkling thing in his hat. And he calls him a red-faced ox of a man. And he's really shocked that he learns that Jack actually has some cultural sensitivities and he loves opera. And Lesueur says, in passing, let me caution you against letting your dislike cloud your judgment and against underestimating your enemy. The red-faced ox is Captain Aubrey. And although he may not look very wise at present, he is the man who negotiated with Sian Bey, destroyed Mustafa, and turned us out of Marga. No fool could have done any one of those things, let alone all three. I might. There we go. The, the Battle of Marga, which we were left unsure about right. at the end of the only mission. Yeah, in three words, after the fact, in second-hand conversation between two secondary characters. That's, that's Patrick O'Brien to a T. We've now all of a sudden found out the Ionian mission was successful. And we learned that Mrs. Fielding is supposed to meet Jack momentarily. And that Lesur's plan is to get to Maturin through Jack. And he says that given how young and good looking she is, he knows Stephen will become involved with her. So the plot thickens here. We've, we've not got that huge da 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 but but we've got a little bum 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 just something's going on here right so mike now that the treachery of this french agent and his colleague is become clear i think we might need to take a step back and consider our position perhaps we should change our perspective and take a few minutes to have a short break what do you think oh absolutely If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. And we need to pick up where we left off, not only with Lesueur and Giuseppe, but with Stephen Maturin and Professor Graham. Because we have another one of these great shifts in perspective. It says, as Lesueur said his words about how young and good-looking Mrs. Fielding was, Maturin turned in his seat and looked straight at the apothecary's tower. It was exactly as though his strange pale eyes pierced the slatted shutters to the men within, and they both silently fell back a pace. A nasty-looking crocodile, said Giuseppe in little more than a whisper. And Mike, we've heard Stephen's gaze described a few times, I think, as reptilian, and that's gone straight to the heart of Giuseppe, I think, who realized that this is a uh, not a foe to underestimate. And it says Stephen turned in response to this unconscious sense that he was being stared at, uh, but he was actually looking at the tower simply because he wondered if there were bats there. And he thought, well, maybe the Walter bats could do with a little bit of studying. Right. Right. And, and uh, O'Brien now has got, he's got this going on here, and he describes Stephen now on multiple occasions as having sort of several layers of thinking going on. So I'm being stared at. It's from over there. Oh, look at that tower. 
oh, that would be a great place for the bats. And it's fascinating. It's another great adding this icing to the cake of the richness of this writing. And part of this depth that's going on here is Stevens looking at the tower. I'm being watched. I'm thinking about the bats. And much deeper, O'Brien tells us, he's really worried. And now we've got these anxieties and vexations. He's worried about the intelligence situation in the Mediterranean. Everywhere he goes, he's hearing confidential information, what uh, O'Brien says, bandied about in the most reckless way. We know that the popular naval governor who had fought with the Maltese to expel the French and was very well-like has been replaced by what's described as a stupid, arrogant booby of a soldier who publicly referred to the Maltese as a pack of popish natives who should be made to understand who was master. So this now has provided a newly reinforced and refinanced French intelligence network with a slew of potential recruits and actual recruits. The incredible intelligence network and diplomatic ties that our Admiral John Thornton had put together had fallen apart under the hands of what's described as the incompetent, ill-tempered, indiscreet, ignorant stopgap Rear Admiral Hart. And as we'll remind ourselves, even Matron had refused to appear before him in any character other than a naval surgeon. Yeah, and, and there's good news and bad news here about what's going on in the naval establishment. There's good news that um, Admiral Thornton has been replaced by Admiral Sir Francis Ives as the new commander-in-chief of the Mediterranean fleet. Um, Ives is away with the blockading fleet off Toulon. So there's somebody, at least, to, to govern Hart, but the Admiralty sends their acting second secretary, Mr. Andrew Ray, to deal with the situation in Malta, and we know that Ray's got history with Jack Aubrey. This probably is not going to be a happy situation. Now, Mike, let's just quickly dip into the character of Sir Francis Ives. We made the claim last time in the previous book that Admiral Thornton was a, was a fictitious admiral, and we learned that actually he's probably a characterization of Collingwood. It doesn't seem to me as though there are obvious parallels between this guy, Sir Francis Ives, and any real-life admiral. But if you've got any listeners who want to put us right, please do. Um, I'm looking now at a picture of the admirals who held the post of Commander-in-Chief of Mediterranean, which is a plaque on the wall of the former Admiralty House in uh, in Valletta. And it says that right after Collingwood was an Admiral Sir Charles Cotton. And I don't know if Francis Ives is meant to be the same as Charles Cotton, but certainly Francis Ives isn't an admiral that I've been able to find out about and certainly doesn't appear in this list of names. So we've got a new admiral. We've got Second Secretary Ray coming in to do something to do with corruption and intelligence. It says that Stephen knew that Ray would have to deal with Malta, with the French, with the ill will of the army, and with the jealousy and obstruction of other British intelligence organizations that had made their devious way into the island. Stephen was consoled that at least the French were probably worse with, it says, traces of at least three different Paris ministries at work in Malta, each in ignorance of the others, and with a man from a fourth keeping watch on them all. Yeah, it's interesting. So we're, you know, we're getting all this thing going on in intelligence. We've got Ray coming in, and we got Stephen thinking more about Ray. And and Stephen says, you know, Ray's missions, it's publicly stated to be checking on corruption in the dockyard. So he's got a cover. Uh, but 
Stephen thought that actually he'd probably be much more successful there because he's thinking back that in Ray's youth, he had what O'Brien writes was a carriage and a considerable establishment on an official salary of a few hundred a year and no private means, which Stephen thinks meant he probably knew a lot about corruption from a very young age and was probably much better at, at sort of finding out about that than he would be in counter espionage. Yeah. So is this going to be set a thief to catch a thief or is this going to be poacher turned gamekeeper? We'll, we'll have to see. Mm. Now, the, the history between Ray and Jack goes back many, many books. Mike, I think it was the Mauritius commander even earlier. Um, Jack had accused Ray or his associates of cheating at cards and Ray had not demanded satisfaction in the form of a duel. And Jack and Stephen had left England. And this... Still leaves us, I think, a little bit uneasy about what Ray's attitude might be to Jack now that Ray's in the Mediterranean. So we've got Jack and Stephen on shore with no ship. We've got French spies about. We've got the dead hand potentially of Andrew Ray, um, who's son-in-law of and in some kind of unholy alliance, we think, with Rear Admiral Hart. Mike, what what happened to the beautiful, sunny, happy day? Right, right. In the midst of all this, we now shift back perspective once again. Graham walks out. He kind of follows where Stephen had walked out. And bam, we're back into the tower. And Lesseur, the French agent, is saying about Graham, ah, you know, at one time he seemed to be part of a different organization altogether. So as we suspected when Graham disrupted Stevens' intelligence operation on the shore of France, that you know Graham was in one of these competing intelligence groups in Britain. And, and now Lister says he just seems to be a linguist dealing with Turkish and Arabic documents and probably will return to his university soon. Now, Lesseur is very upset because Mrs. Fielding is supposed to have met Jack here for an Italian lesson. He's kind of arranged that uh, she's going to be his Italian tutor. Jack's trying to learn more Italian so he can enjoy the opera more. And Lesseur has stepped in to surreptitiously change his tutors to try to get to Matron. She finally arrives with her maid and the captains are falling all over themselves to greet her. And they're also asking about Ponto. Where is Ponto? And O'Brien tells us that Ponto is the grim, censorious, puritanical, unsmiling creature with a collar of steel spikes, the Illyrian Mastiff, an animal the size of a moderate calf that always stalked by Laura Fielding's side, protecting her from the least familiarity by its mere presence. And later he adds a thunderous growl. And she reports that uh, you know, he'd been left home because he had killed an ass. And I'm I'm kind of sure that O'Brien has used this word on purpose. So if any of you turn <laughs> the asses, you know, you'll be dealt with with dear Ponto. You know? <laughs> so Laura Fielding's walking about protected by this huge dog. And meanwhile, Stephen's watching what he calls the ludicrous human mating display as he's observing all these officers flirting or just on the boundaries of flirting with Laura Fielding and noting that while looking at Jack, none of these men had a chance. 
He's watching her with admiration, how she hits the right notes. She overlooks the stumbling drunken behavior. She doesn't simper. She's not kind of maid-like. She's not overconfident. She hits the right note of friendliness. And although she's shocked to see the wound on Tom Pulling's face, she wishes him joy straight away of his promotion. She invites him to her house that night for a quartet rehearsal. And Stephen sees her childish delight in watching the chilenk. And he sees also the frank greed in her eyes when she had it in her hands. And as Stephen's absorbing all of these features of Mrs. Fielding and feeling certain very base emotions stirring within him, he notices that her sight reminds him of his first love and noted that she had shown him particular attention. Now, insects might still delude maturin and pierce his skin, says the author, but at this stage, it was difficult for women to do so. He knew that no one could possibly admire him for his looks. And O'Brien goes on to say that he's not got any great personal connections. He says his status in the Navy was modest. He was not even a commissioned officer, nor was he rich. Mrs. Fielding's amiability was therefore prompted by something other than the remote notion of gallantry or of profit. What it might be, he could not tell unless indeed it had to do with intelligence. And if that were so, then clearly it was his duty to be all compliance. So there's one of our examples, I think, Mike, of still waters that could run deep. Yeah, yeah. Stephen is kind of looking. He's seeing her, and you know, he's, she's set up to be the perfect kind of honey to draw the bee, the light to bring the moth. But Stephen sees through it. We At least we think so. You know, we've heard that Stephen's feeling a bit amorous, this confined bull. Um, you know, this could go wrong. On the other hand, this is not Jack Aubrey on land admiring her. And it's not Stephen Matron at sea. It's Stephen Matron in intelligence matters on land. And O'Brien tells us that his compliance, his kind of going ahead and going along with this, even though he suspects that he's being set up here, is the only way he could learn her connections or use her to convey false information. So now we have a little bit of a kind of a echo back to Desolation Island. Now, he does tell himself he might just be seeing spies everywhere, but he's going to play this game because he likes her company. He likes the musical evenings, and he's pretty sure he can govern his emotions. But O'Brien tells us Stephen's sole purpose in actually even being at this function today in dressing up in his beautiful white stockings wasn't to go to the reception for Ray like everybody else. It was so he could talk with her. So interesting move. Now we've got, you know, the chess moves looking several moves ahead here on the part of Stephen. Now that we've got Stephen's agenda as an intelligence agent clear and in the open and we've got the potential deception of mrs fielding and we've got open questions about philosophy this might be a good time to go talk to our friend brian wilson we're super excited to welcome back to the podcast our old friend and former guest brian wilson brian's based in dallas in texas and is a super patrick o'brien fan and is the co-host of the combat and classics podcast and we'll dig into that and in a, in a moment or two you might remember that brian is a former intelligence agent with the united states marine corps spent time working in dc uh, teaching human intelligence tradecraft to marines and then also went out and got himself an education at st john's college and again we might dip into that 
in a couple of seconds. Um, Brian, it's great to have you back with us. Welcome. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Uh, hopefully everybody has a bit of grog ready because I think we're going to talk about Rousseau, that mumping villain. So uh, hopefully we'll everybody has something to take the edge off depending on your opinion of old Jean-Jacques. <laughs> well, this, the sun's over the yard. I'm somewhere in the world. I think uh, I think we're all there. Brian, remind us, you know, as a former intelligence officer and O'Brien reader, how you came to have an interest in philosophy. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of the thing that that got me to St. John's um, was going to Iraq in 05 and just having a few of those, you know, light existential questions like what is the nature of man and uh, trying to figure out a place to figure it out. So um, got off active duty, uh, went to work. My day job was with the Navy SEALs um, as a human intelligence subject matter expert. And then at night, I would drive out to Annapolis, Maryland, to St. John's College and read Rousseau and Kant and Plato and, and all that stuff in the, in the hopes of kind of figuring out, you know, what is it uh, that causes people to go to war? What is it um, that causes people to either have power or want power? Um, what is authority? You know, little stuff like that. Boy, it, you know, it sounds like, a, you know, a topic that Stephen Matron would be terribly interested in as well. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that Stephen and I are um, kindred souls in, in trying to understand that. Um, and it's I, I don't know if I meant I think I mentioned this in the last time I was on the pod, but just I, I really I read these books uh, and they have many dimensions. But I feel like one of those dimensions is just, you know, what is authority? And why do why do some men seek it? Why do why do some men uh, exercise it responsibly? Why do others uh, go nuts and uh, become amoral? Um, it's a, it's an interesting little uh, little you know twenty one novel uh, sequence to think about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice to know that in society today we've moved beyond you know needing to. Really yeah, we're worry. all set. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah we're good. <laughs> We're totally enlightened. Take us to where we are in the podcast now. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. We've noticed it beginning to rub off on Jack in the dialogues between Jack and Stephen. Jack is starting to talk about whether whether a war is 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 worth fighting or worth winning. But here's the thing: so far, in the first whatever it was, seven novels of the canon, most of this debate about cause and authority in philosophy came in the bantering conversation between Stephen and Jack. At the beginning of Treason's Harbour, where we are now, we get this great intervention by Professor Graham. And I don't know if he's just kind of baiting Stephen into the conversation or if he wants to make a serious point, but he's got this great paragraph where he's starting to drop all these philosophical names. Take us into that, Brian, and see if you can help us understand what's going on there. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating little conversation, and, and this is this is not um, their first conversation about philosophy. Um, and I wonder how much Stephen really enjoys these conversations. Uh, part of me wonders whether or not he's afraid he's going to give too much away. But another part of me thinks that maybe Stephen doesn't know himself uh, as well as, as well as we might, but, uh, I, I can read this little, this passage here. And I'm very tempted to try my Scottish accent, but I'm, I'm going to belay on that. Oh. Uh, 
But uh, this is Graham and Stephen talking in the beginning of Treason's Harbor. Um, you might say that Dunn's Scotus stands in much the same relation to Aquinas as Kant to Leibniz, said Graham, carrying on their earlier conversation. Sure, I have often heard the remark in Ballinslow, said Maturin, but I have no patience with Immanuel Kant. Ever since I found him take such a notice of that thief Rousseau, I've had no patience with him at all. For a philosopher to countenance that false ranting dog of a Swiss reparee shows either a criminal levity or a no less criminal gullibility. Gushing, carefully calculated tears, false confidences, untrue confessions, enthusiasm, romantic vistas. His hand moved of itself to his cigar case and came away disappointed. How I hate enthusiasm and romantic vistas, he said. Davy Hume was of your opinion, said Graham. I mean, with regard to Monsieur Rousseau. You found him to be little more than a cracket gabberlunzi. But at least Rousseau did not make a noise, said Maturin, looking angrily at his friends on the farther bower. Jean-Jacques Rousseau may have been an apostate, a cold-hearted, prevaricating fornicator, but he did not behave like a Bashan bull when he was merry. Well, you look how they call out to those young women now for shame. <laughs> it was all I could do not <laughs> to chuckle. Um... I think the, you enjoyed Crackett Gabalunzi as well. Crackett Gabalunzi. There you go. I gave I gave my one my one attempt at a Scottish accent there. Um, yeah. So this is fascinating in a lot of ways. He doesn't seem to think much of Rousseau. <laughs> <laughs> Typical Stephen, keeping his cards close to his chest here. Um, yeah, he seems to have a few a few things um, a few feelings going on. Uh, towards towards Rousseau here and I would also like to point out how this so this is when Stephen gives up um he's given up smoking uh and yep. there's also he, he's given up opium at this point mm-hmm. and so you know one wonders if his um passionate diatribe here against Rousseau is, is purely reason uh purely him exercising his reason you know as he as his hand moved of itself to his cigar case and came away disappointed <laughs> right so it's and this is what an interesting line that in and of itself his hand move of itself to his cigar case and came away disappointed so the subject of that sentence is his hand and so there, his hand is what comes away disappointed. And so in that just little line, we have this idea that there is this conscious mind, but then there is this something else, this animus that is in us that craves, that needs, that wants. Uh, and Stephen is no less a sufferer of that than, than all of us. But um, it, it's interesting to me that first off, how much Stephen <laughs> dislikes Rousseau. Yeah. Uh but but just secondly, how how it's layered on top of this um, reasonable being, uh, Stephen, quasi reasonable, not having this thing that his body craves for this opium and this tobacco and things like that. So uh, I just wanted to make sure to to, to highlight that as I, I think it's O'Brien, you know, kind of fascinating in in his depth of character study. Well, so if we accept that he's not feeling great because he's jonesing for his tobacco, is anything else that we can learn about Maturin and O'Brien's collective thoughts about Rousseau? I, I think there's more to this than just just a passing <laughs> uh, <laughs> passing dislike. Yeah. So if you if you read some Rousseau. Um, 
one can't help but wonder, at least for me, and and again, I, I think I put this in the last time I was in, for any of the listeners, please tell me where I'm wrong, because uh, I'm sure I will be. Uh, I'm sure I will take some liberties here. And so feel free to go onto uh, Twitter or onto the Lubber's Hole Facebook uh, page and uh, feel free to at me and yeah. tell me I have no idea what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, the, the very famous first line of chapter one of the social contract of Rousseau, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. He who believes himself the masters of others does not escape being more of a slave than they. How did this change take place? I do not know. What can render it legitimate? I believe I can answer this question. And so this idea of authority, this idea of slavery uh, is the core part of Rousseau's core work. And yet Stephen doesn't like him. <laughs> what what could be going on? Uh, <laughs> because it doesn't make sense. Because when you when you think about all the times throughout the canon that Stephen has railed against slavery, when you think of all the times that Stephen has railed against authority, what are we left with in terms of why Stephen and by extension O'Brien, and we'll we'll get to the other books where this is not just a, a quick aside with Graham and then uh, we move on. Like this is O'Brien. If, if O'Brien has one target for his ire throughout the canon, it's Bonaparte. But if he has a second one, it's probably Rousseau. Um, I, I wonder how much O'Brien hated Andrew Ray compared to Jean-Jacques. And so a, a hypothesis that I'd like to bring forth and maybe get you guys' ideas on is the fact that um, Rousseau fathered five children and gave up all five to orphanages. And so how much of this is Stephen's knowledge and awareness of his state in society being of illegitimate birth, how much is that informing his idea of Rousseau? It seems very solid in my mind that that is part of it, but you know, I'm, I'm open to being uh, told I'm wrong by, by you guys or anybody else. Well, I, I don't think we've got a, a place from which to come at that and say that it's wrong, but it does seem like the, the deepest bits of Stephen's character that, that kind of push him and, uh, and and drive him to what looks like illogical behavior are sometimes his relationships with children or his, his feelings and thoughts about relationships with children, which again is not a million miles away from some of what we know about the biographical details of Patrick O'Brien. Mm -hmm. Would Stephen be alone in his thinking in your experience, Brian, or other people, other literary people looking at Rousseau this way, kind of down their nose, not because of his ideas, but also because of his life. Oh, well, well, certainly. And thank you for teeing that up because um, we talk about this at, on the Combat and Classics podcast on our Frankenstein episode. And uh, this this often happens when uh, when we're on there as my co-hosts uh, bring up fascinating things with that which kind of blow my mind and one of the things that was brought up when we were talking about frankenstein is that it was in no small part inspired by rousseau in that uh dr frankenstein himself uh created this thing and with the idea that it was going to be improvement an improvement of man it was going to better man somehow and also that there were five deaths in the book that five people are killed in the book and my, my co-host posited that this was a meditation on rousseau and the french revolution 
Mm. That it was no accident that Victor Frankenstein was a Genevan, just like Rousseau. Mm. Uh, and that the idea that you can create something better than man or, or create a system that creates something that's better than man uh, is, is perilous. And that uh, be careful what you wish for as death and destruction might fall quickly upon the heels of, of trying to you know, perfect man or improve upon man. It's not an unknown uh, idea. Um, that that Rousseau was you know culpable for the French Revolution even though he died before it happened but that his writings were um, very inspirational to the, the French Revolution and you know this is this is also another example of does Stephen know himself mm. is, is is always an interesting question because you know he was somebody that uh, took part in the Irish Revolution in some way um, I believe if my memory is correct um, was in medical school in Paris uh, at the beginnings of the French Revolution and O'Brien intimates that there was some kind of you know ties or some kind of you know at least loose involvement with and, and we can't you know with with Stevens kind of social standing and network like we wouldn't find it super surprising that he would be in some Parisian salon where revolution was was talked about um but you know again how much is uh steven's lack of self-knowledge um culpable for him detesting rousseau you know here's somebody that believes in revolution to some degree or at least fueled revolution and steven did so as well um but how much of this is you know steven's shall we say uh daddy issues um that are also coming into play here as well yeah, and Stephen very often repeats his really great love and admiration and respect for French people and French right. culture and for France and for Paris, but almost always juxtaposes that with just how deeply he hates Bonaparte. Like he's deeply disillusioned mm-hmm. <laughs> with the idea that the, the the some of the ideals of Rousseau turned into the the person and the acts of, of Bonaparte. Which it's interesting because certainly that was Stephen's experience with his connection to the Irish Revolution. It's it's become his experience now with the French Revolution leading to Bonaparte, and and it kind of harkens back a little bit to a conversation that he had in Fortune of War with the surgeon Mister Evans there, where Stephen absolutely philosophically is opposed to monarchy. He's a supporter of revolutions. He cheered the taking of the Bastille, but. He tells Evans that he thinks monarchs are best because look at what happens under monarchs. I mean, we have, you know, we build cathedrals, we write verse, we do that. He says, now, unfortunately, we also go on crusades. So Stephen seems to be a little bit conflicted about, I love this stuff, but I don't like the way it turns out. And sometimes, even though I hate the idea and it's completely illogical, there's some good things that come out of the other. So I I wonder. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that this kind of gets to maybe youth, right? And maybe yeah. being maybe being burned by your passions. You know, here we here we have Stephen twenty years before during the the Irish Rebellion, maybe not as full throated as some of his colleagues in trying to overthrow the crown and, and gain Irish independence, but uh, at least involved. And then how much does he shift that and what gets him involved in intelligence work in the first place is the idea of Catalan independence. Right. right. And so while he does some, I guess, utilitarian calculations in saying, okay, I will serve the crown in this role as surgeon and intelligence agent, but 
you know, how much is he compromising himself? Uh, how much is he illogical in his actions versus his precepts? And how much is he kind of using a transference of sorts to go, okay, well, I can't really be involved in Irish independence. That, that's not a safe place for me to be right now. So what can I do to express these views and these values that I, I feel on this deep-seated level? Maybe I can shift it towards Catalonia and not feel the the, the pain and the risk as much as when I was supporting you know Irish revolution. Hmm. But this just goes to show like how fascinating it either goes to show like how full of it I am or it goes to show (laughs) how fascinating uh, and thoughtful the character development is that that O'Brien utilizes, you know, in the novels and and in Stephen particularly. And and but but again, I don't think it's accidental that, you know, Rousseau is an explicit target because um, he is at least an implicit one in several other places throughout the canon. But again, it comes back to like, what is the bone that O'Brien is trying to pick with Rousseau? Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, some of my learned, maybe you two or some of my learned colleagues uh, who are listening to this can, can figure it out for me. But my gut is telling me that it is something about the character of Rousseau yeah. and, and not, his, not his writings. Because again, a lot of the stuff that, that he writes about, that Rousseau writes about is to try to, you know, quote unquote, create free men to have, um, you know, independence, uh, all these things that Stephen cares for so much, but there's something about Rousseau's role in the French revolution, um, and how that goes and how that brings about Bonapartism. There's something about, I think, um, the fact that, you know, he sired five children and gave them all up in the orphanage that is really causing some significant consternation for both Stephen and, and for our, our dear Patrick O'Brien. And I don't have a, a neat answer as to what that is. I think it's something along the lines of, um, a, a character study of Stephen, but, um, you know, maybe that's something that all my shipmates on this circumnavigation through the books can can explore and think for themselves and, and feel free to throw your ideas out on the Lubber's Hole oh. Facebook uh, group so that I can I can get your input. Absolutely. We should just maybe just drop the coordinates in there. That's going to be facebook.com forward slash Lubber's Hole where you can find me and Mike. And we all also post quite often on the Aubrey Matter and Appreciation Society on Facebook and the Patrick O'Brien Appreciation Society on Facebook and the gun room and on Twitter at whole lubbers. Um, where are you on Twitter? Brian remind us. Yeah. At, at Brian PCF, uh, P is in Papa C is in Charlie F is in Foxtrot. So what's happening in the world of Brian Wilson? What's happening with combat and classics? What, what can we look out for in the future? Uh, yeah. So we've, um, we've done a couple episodes recently. We did, um, a long series on the education of Cyrus by Xenophon. Miley. Oh my! <laughs> yes, and and the juxtaposition in her character between uh, her and, and Hannah Montana. Yeah. So uh, for any for any Miley fans, um, <laughs> just, just, yeah, a, little, just so, a little reference there for the younger listeners. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to get the Gen Xers uh, on yeah. board with the canon sooner or later. Totally. So yeah, so we've got that um, as well as we had uh, Claudia Hauer on uh, recently talking about her book uh, Strategic Humanism. Hmm. Uh, which is just an idea of, you know, what it means. I mean, it's it's a very similar theme to what we talk about in O'Brien, which is like, what does it mean to be a moral human being, um, an agent of your own will and, and be in the military? 
Um, so uh, I had an interesting conversation with her, but you can check all that out. Uh, combatandclassics.org. Uh, and uh, happy to hear from anybody if they check something out. Uh, you know, uh, let us know what you'd like to hear. Let us know how you liked it. Fantastic. Well, Brian, thanks so much for being back here. We uh, we hope you're always close by because we never know when there's another rhinoceros or praying mantis or wolf call that we need to your your help in figuring out as well as the world of intelligence and the world of philosophy. We sure appreciate your partnership. Well, you guys are doing great work and I'm, I'm really enjoying the pod. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Uh, awesome. Lots of fun. Grog for all hands. Yes. Our thanks once again to Brian for joining us. That was a great interview. Thank you, Brian. We've put an extended edit of that interview over on our Patreon page if you want to go and check it out there for our Patreon supporters. Now, meanwhile, the officers have set off for the governor's reception. Mike, remind us, what's Stephen up to? Stephen goes over to Mrs. Fielding and does a sweeping bow, asking how she is today. And she asks Stephen to try to persuade Jack to take his lesson. She argues that this lesson is only about conjugating one Italian verb. Ian, you're going to have to help me here. What is this? Memorate the trapasso remoto. Tell me about it. <laughs> Memorate the trapasso remoto, which sounds very charming. Right, right. I, 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 <laughs> so a particular version of a particular tense. And she says it won't take long. And he reminds her that sailors are slaves to, to clocks and bells because Jack and the group have had to head off to the reception for Mr. Ray. And she says, it's just a regular trapasso remoto, so it won't take 10 minutes. And Stephen insists the men have got to go, but he invites her to stay in and have a glass of cold milk with him. And Mike, we get a, a return back to a very, very old joke from right at the beginning of the series. Master and commander, he says, you had much better sit down with me and drink a glass of iced cow's milk in the shade. The goat, I cannot recommend. Oh my gosh. I just <laughs> I just guffawed when I read this. <laughs> so for those of you who remember it from Master Commander, enjoy the laugh. For those of you who don't, you might not want to. <laughs> no. Still, skip the goat milk anyhow. So she has to go to her next lesson. She asks Jack to take pullings by to see the lemon tree before the evening performance. Jack asks if Ponto the Mastiff will be there, and she is she assures him that Ponto respects a naval uniform as long as Jack avoids touching the lemons. Touching the lemons, eh, Mike? Right, right. Do you get it? Do anyway. You guys can look, but do not touch the lemons. No, no. But, Mike, the Trapassato Remoto... This, this is a, a very specific and little-used Italian compound tense. It says in, my, in, in the research that we have here, it says it's typically not spoken, but it's used in literature under very specific conditions. It's used when the passato remoto tense is also being used along with words talking about time. And I don't think we've got any sort of intact connection to, to an equivalent in English grammar. It sounds a little bit like the passé composé in French, if I can flash out my... French past tense chops, but that's all forgotten about a long time ago. Yeah, it seems to be this thing that, you know, kind of in, in literary terms, usually we talk about things that happened way back then, maybe just start a book or something. And this is something that happened right before something that happened way back then. So it's this, as you say, in this, this compound tense with very specific rules. 
And so, you know, kind of wondering to myself here, why does O'Brien pick this particular tense? It's this, is there something that happened a while back and there was something important that happened before that? I know we got just this little thing in the scene that had just occurred where as Stevens talking to Mrs. Fielding about, you know, these sailors have to respect time, this darkness flashes across Mrs. Fielding's face because the only disagreement she'd ever had with her husband was about punctuality. Why in the world we throw that in? We know that her husband was arrested some way back time. And this is something that happened before that happened. No idea. But it's just such a good nugget. O'Brien's got to be putting a pin in that for us somewhere. Have to find out what happens. Oh, it's great, isn't it? Again, just a little tiny hint towards something that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, we get another change of perspective. Stephen and Mrs. Fielding are sitting down for ice cream without goat's milk. And we have Giuseppe, unless you are watching it all from the clock tower. And Giuseppe says, your plan seems to answer, sir. He's meaning, of course, the plan to use Laura Fielding unwittingly to reel in some intelligence from Stephen Maturin. I believe it may answer very well, said Lesieur. In general, I have found that the uglier man, the greater his vanity. (laughs) Speaking as a very vain man, Mike, I can confirm that. Yeah, yeah, you and me both. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Fielding then asks Maturin to escort her, since she doesn't have Ponto. And Stephen agreed, and they walk along thinking about moods and their origins, which is where Stephen's head has been at, to be quite honest, all the way through this chapter. His silence disturbed her as he thought it might. So he's playing the strong silent thing as a bit of a ruse to get her talking about what situation she's in. He notices that she appeared to be under a constraint. It says her tone and smile became more artificial and she asked in the end if he liked dogs. And I love this little Irish return. Dogs, is it? He said, giving her a sideways glance. And they have this little conversation about dogs and bats and high-spirited, cheerful creatures. And it seems really, really awkward until Stephen digs a little bit deeper into the nature of dogs. Yeah, he does. And and it's interesting. It's awkward because Stephen is kind of telling her, okay, obviously you want us to look like we're in a big conversation here. So you've asked me about dogs, but we could talk about anything. But, you know, since you want to look like we're in conversation, we'll talk about dogs. But then Stephen starts reflecting on this and he says, though, There is a quality in dogs, I must confess, rarely to be seen elsewhere, and that is affection. I do not mean the violent, possessive, protective love for their owner, but rather that mild, steady attachment to their friends that we see quite often in the best sort of dog. And when you consider the rarity of plain, disinterested affection among our own kind once we are adult— Alas, when you consider how immensely it enhances daily life and how it enriches a man's past and future so that he can look back and forward with complacency, why, it is a pleasure to find it in brute creation. And again, I got to this thing and I thought, oh my God, you know, this is it. This is why I love these novels. This is Stephen and Jack. This is their steady attachment to their friends and how it enriches their lives. And I thought, it's almost like to me, O'Brien saying, yeah, I know there's a secret sauce in these novels. At least it's a secret sauce for me. I'll tell you what yeah. it is. 
in this little throwaway comment about dogs that's just supposed to be these two characters making conversation because presumably somebody's watching us and they have to think we're getting along well together. But I just love this here. And it, it, it kind of you know ties back to this whole thing about philosophers and what's the nature of men and what, how do people, how do mankind, the best of mankind. Here it is. And this is going to be kind of a constant refrain in this symphony of books of O'Brien's. Oh, I love it. And it's very easy, I think, often to see O'Brien as a bit of a backward-looking person, as having a, a backward-looking spirit. But actually, about people, he can be really optimistic. And this is a really generous, thoughtful, you know, upbeat sentiment about people and, and the friendship between between friends. Oh, I, you, you've, you've picked out a really great theme here, Mike. It's great. And he, he can't resist continuing the thought. It says, <laughs> affection was also to be found in commanders. And of course, we're talking about Commander Pullings here. It fairly beamed from Pullings as Jack Aubrey led him up to the governor and his guest. So one further shift of perspective, Mike. Tom Pullings and Jack Aubrey at the governor's mansion. I'm pretty sure they're going to encounter Sir Hildebrand. I'm pretty sure they're going to encounter Mr. Secretary Ray. I'm pretty sure that we have to hear a little bit more about what's going to go on between Jack and Ray because things were not great when last they met many, many books ago. How is Pullings going to conduct himself now that he's in command and now that he's in a very, very lavish party at the governor's residence? And what's going to happen with the dog? Mike, I, <laughs> this this dog of a Chekhov's gun. We, we pulled it up over and over <laughs> again here, and and as you say, you know, here we are. We've got so much we want to know about, and and we're ending here again on this affection between friends. You know, we remember back that, you know, when Jack thought that he'd backed the wrong bay in the Ionian mission, his big loss was not my career, not all that. But I'm not going to be able to help Tom Pullings. And here Tom Pullings is there. So I don't know. What what do you say, Ian, to picking up a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Mike, I should like that of all things. Of all things, especially more than the goats, Mike. <laughs> He says, but at least Rousseau did not make a noise, said Matron, looking angrily at his friend. Oops. Hold on. You mentioned Rousseau and the dog barks. I'm just saying. <laughs>